Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Fail Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined this week by Paul Field. Evening, fellas. Matt Lamborn. How do you guys? And uh, an extremely happy Owen Hughes after what you just watched. Yeah, fuck off, you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, go, we'll go straight into the quiz. And for those of you who don't know, haven't listened much, the loser of the quiz inevitably has to watch something bad because we never recommend anyone anything good to watch. So Paul found a film called Essex Space Bin and I mm-hmm. made Owen watch it. And Owen is going to review Essex Space Bin for us now. There's no, there is no point reviewing this. Well, there is. I had to look. I, it's not going to be. There is no. There is no review. There is no review. Basically, what happened was Essex Space Bin is a film that prides itself. Right. Its whole conceit is that it is a bad movie. Like they set out purposefully to make a bad film. And then with each scene, as it progresses, they they try their hardest to make it worse as it goes on. That is what they that that's like literally what they wanted to do with it. It is not a fucking movie. It's not a movie. I don't care how much that they think it's got some kind of weird artistic. Can you, can you tell us what the plot is? No, there is no fucking plot. <laughs> there must be. <laughs> there's this. There's what this, this there is it? a plot because I've seen it as well. There is a a woman called Lorraine who is <laughs> mental. <laughs> and I've heard it described as the Susan Boyle of movies. The Susan. It's not that. Isn't uh, uh, like she's. When I say mental, I'm being facetious, but I actually mean she's she's crazy. She she's loopy, and it turns out it's because she was dipped in Agent Orange when she was a kid, like when she was a baby. So that's the explanation for it. But what she's trying to do is create a portal to another world that she thinks um, she can only do in Essex. <laughs> of course. So the first your first encounter with this character in the loosest possible sense of the word character she's built a big arch out of fried chicken boxes covered herself in tinfoil and is attempting to walk through it to enter a portal into another world there's always tinfoil Owen always with a loony there's always tinfoil it's yeah but that like again this is what I mean they've done that intentionally knowing that it's crap (laughs) that it's an awful cliche so you're watching it. You can't impartially like review this. I've, it's down as a comedy, a comedy sci-fi. It's 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 neither. It isn't anything. Isn't, isn't that portal 
in Essex just a Dartford tunnel? <laughs> it's it's like I say, it's made out of chicken boxes. It's not. It it's basically she's crazy. So then you see like it's supposed to be like a weird British thing, right? So everything in it is an exaggerated version of a real thing, except it then tries to retain a sense of reality while having mad robot donkeys and stuff and uh, weird like space gods that are dogs because you know gods and dogs it's and it's just uh, uh, i can't i couldn't stand it i couldn't stand it at all i got to like 20 minutes in and i was i was (laughs) just about ready to fling my tv into the fucking fireplace (laughs) do you know one of the reasons that not just that it was bad because yeah. I, I was thinking, I would not want to have to want to try and review this. That would be the most painful listening <laughs> imaginable because it's just, it just makes no sense. It's, it's beyond, almost impossible to review. It's beyond reviewable. And you, I've read some stuff like um, Starburst had to review. I went and had to look on, you know, Starburst magazine. I had to look on their website because they pick up some of these crazier things from, from time to time. And they go, oh, yeah, it's like this quintessentially English comedy that's just really wacky it's not really wacky it's shit but that's the point is that it's shit and so it's not wacky it's just a fucking excruciating experiment but if 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 they set out to make the worst film ever made and they made the worst film ever made does that not mean it's the best film ever made? No, no, that is that is giving them what they want. <laughs> you can't. It's not. It's not possible to say that it's good because it's intentionally bad. If it's intentionally bad and it's bad, they've done a good job, but it's still a fucking abortion of a piece of shit. So, Owen, can I ask you? Will you be going? Will you be coming to the premiere of this? What the, the PCC? Yeah, with, with Lloyd uh, Kaufman. Uncle Lloyd. <laughs> can't see no, Uncle Lloyd. I will not. <laughs> It's a fuck, that's the thing, right? It's a British film. It was made in Britain, but it's been picked up by Troma. Um, because there is this, there is an element to it where it will, in a weird way, make a little bit of money for someone. And that's the one, is, it turns out, is going to be probably Troma. Because it's, it's going to get a reputation as a cult film. Because it is different. And I am sick of conventional movies. And I do like to try things that are a bit unique. Um, but that doesn't equal good. That doesn't equal watchable. That doesn't equal an enjoyable experience. It's not funny. And it's meant to be. It's painful. Did you? I did laugh at the two fellas nicking the tellies and nope. the old lady being pulled along in the coffin. But other than that, it was no. Yeah, that, but then like you, I, I would have felt like I was giving in to what they wanted. And I was so fucking cross with them <laughs> the two directors that i wasn't prepared to do that i mean i was can I, i've got to ask you because i you know i've seen a lot of shit films i mean mm-hmm. i think this is that is the worst film i've ever endured what 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 about you it's not the worst film I, i'm Ooh, i'm not even going to give them the fucking satisfaction of saying it is the worst film so what, because what is, what is worse worse uh, well, I mean, you know, fucking Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows probably worse as really? a film. If I, yeah, if Catwoman I with Halle Berry is a worse no, film because no, those I mean, films have not set out to make a bad film. 
they, so, those films have set out to be okay. a, an so entertaining if I, if watchable I had movie. A, if I had a gun to your head and said, oh, I'm going to shoot you now, unless you watch Catwoman or Essex Space Bin, or Kill Keith or Essex Space Bin, what would you pick? I'd say, put the gun in my mouth and pull the fucking trigger. All right, what if I put it to your wife's head? Let's be really harsh about this. <laughs> I'd say, I love you, dear, but, you know. <laughs> no, I just think, like, it's not, it's not, you can't measure it against those movies. You can't. You, the only thing you can measure against them is the experience that you had with it, and like I say, it, as a, you can judge Catwoman as a bad film. You can judge Book of Shadows as a bad film because that's just an unfortunate consequence of what happened during the production of those movies. Essex Space Bin is purposefully designed to elicit this feeling that I have about it. Oh, it's so it works. I'm not denying it's it's not done its job. I'm just saying that it's that's not justifiable. <laughs> I can't I can't articulate how I feel about this film. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I think it sounds like the best film ever, <laughs> and it's quite clearly going to be this year's mob ended. Well. Matt, it's, that's it's, that's the that's the problem though because it is it is going to be this year's mob handed and I really <laughs> do not want to give this more airtime. Well, Matt, let's make a deal then. As this quiz is first to three, I've got to plug away <laughs> to get three three points. But if we lose tonight, you have to watch it. I'll, I'll watch it for free. Don't worry. About it. <laughs> it well, it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, beautiful! I've got Amazon Prime. That's. <laughs> I hope you enjoy. I actually stumbled across it on Amazon Prime. I wasn't looking for anything. It was, yeah, I, was, yeah. I think I was on the like <laughs> horror section or comedy or whatever, and it was literally like the last title on there. Mm. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> how bad can it be? How bad can it be? Right, should we do the quiz, boys? Oh, Are you finished with Essex Space, Ben Owen? I, I am just about done. I'll I think. make you watch it again. <laughs> just to. <laughs> got four and a half you, stars on amazon that it's got four and a half fucking stars on amazon i don't that is just like the 13 people who've actually seen the movie who were involved with it i, I think just don't, i just don't think you get it i think i get I, it do you know what killed it for me right at the start in the titles when it came up with like the chelmsford film society yeah <laughs> yeah but th- that's because that like that's what it's not a trauma film in the sense that trauma created no. it so it's not part of traumaville it's not got the quirky humour of a trauma movie it's there's no tits in it either which no. I think given Lorraine is probably a good thing what, um, mentally ill 50 year old woman no Who's with one that? tooth and yeah. uh yeah breast below her knees I mean it's it's not um it's just it doesn't feel like a trauma film but that's what I mean when I say it feel you know you can see why trauma have picked it up yeah. it's gonna in the same way in the same vein that some films have, like, uh, it's it's not comparable in the sense of, you know, it being the same tone or anything, but in the same way as something like a Serbian film or Human Centipede pick up this kind of following because it builds a reputation. And that's, that's what this is going to do. Or The Room, for, the, for example, yeah. is probably a better comparison can we, than The can Room. Can we do the quiz now? We've spent enough time on this. You made me watch it, and you can't <laughs> fucking shut me up about it. <laughs> we can, because we know it's dog shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, honestly, right. Owen, I'm so happy you watched that film. I'm glad someone is, because I'm not. 
mate, a bet's a bet. When you do the quiz, you got to. If you lose, you got to watch the film. You got to do it, no matter what it might be. I have two and a half thousand words to write on the use of standard English. Right, that's got to be in by Monday. Okay, I've written nothing, and I've just spent an hour and eighteen minutes watching this. I'm living the dream, mate. Living. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Okay, so the quiz this week. Obviously, we're, our main review is Train Spotting Two, and in exchange for you watching Essex Space Bin, I've done the quiz instead. Yes, that was our trade-off. Um, <laughs> it's all about 1996. The quiz. Can I just check? How old, Owen? How old were you in 1996? Ten. You were ten, Matt. Yeah. Thirteen, going on fourteen. And Steve. Tenth uh, birthday would have been October. Yeah, mine was August, so we basically spent most of the year nine. Oh, good. Well, I, I was 26 and um, was having You're a good so time. Oh, no. <laughs> First question. In 1996, who was the UK Prime Minister? Was it Tony uh, Blair, John Major or Gordon Brown? So, Owen, you can go John, first. John Major. That's what I thought. I thought okay. so too. Okay, point each. Because mm-hmm. didn't Blair start giving it the old Labour's coming home after football's coming home? Yeah, 97 Labour got him. Yeah. did. That's a nice little warm-up. I thought you'd get that one. Which LP sold the most copies in 1996? Was it Oasis with the What's the Story? Alanis Morissette with Jagged Little Pill? Or the Spice Girls with Spice? <laughs> wow. Steve, Matt? That's tough, isn't it? I would have to go for Spy Skills, but they're all massive. But Oasis, were, was it UK or global? Uh, no, UK. I, I'd say Oasis, they were huge at that time. Yeah, what Spy Skills are the biggest ever, ever. So wh- which one are you going for? I, I would personally go for, for the Spy Skills. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Matt then, with, okay. with the Spy Skills. Yeah, I think it was Spice World. I seem to remember it smashing some record the Beatles had. Okay, well, it was actually Alanis Morissette with Jagged Little Pill. No, really? No <laughs> points for either of you. I mean, I've got no um, respect for the British public of 996 <laughs> anymore. Moving on to singles, which of these sold the most copies in 1996? Killing Me Softly by the Fugees, Spaceman by Babylon Zoo, Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Owen? Well, just sticking with what I just said, I'll, stay, I'll say Spice Girls again. Okay. Shall we, we, we twist, Matt? I'm not going yeah. Spice Girls. Fugees. I, th- I was going to say Fugees, yeah, because I, I seem to remember that being number one for a while. It is the Fugees. Well um, done. No, no. <laughs> this is, did they both? Can we make him watch Essex Spaceman again if we win? You can do whatever you like, fellas. Let, let's let's move on to film. How much was the average cinema ticket price in 1996? Matt, Steve, three pounds £4.70 or £5.70? They all seem a lot cheaper than I would have gone for. Um, like you have a guess on that one, Steve. 370 370 for you. What do you reckon, Owen? Yeah, I'm going to say 370 I seem to remember paying about 370 for a cinema ticket when I was in in Finchley, and that was about 10 years ago, so it can't be, can't be much higher than that. This yeah, 370 this, this isn't that lottery show. Nick Knowles hasn't asked to show you working for an answer. Yeah, just, just it's three seventy. Well done, both of you yeah. get a point. Worldwide box office 
the number one film that year. This isn't the question. Does anyone know what it was? Ninety-six. Uh, in Titanic. Toy no, Story. Independence no, Day. It was Independence Day, but <laughs> what was the second highest-grossing worldwide film? Was it One Hundred and One Dalmatians, Twister, or Space Jam? Owen. <laughs> um, Space Jam. What do you reckon, boys? Mm. I got a feeling it's Space Jam. Space Jam, yeah. No, it was Twister. <laughs> God, what a crap film as well. <laughs> so no points for either of you. Moving on to um, Train Spotting. Who was originally cast to play Renton? Was it Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, or Robert Carlyle? And uh, <laughs> is this you to answer, Owen? Uh, yes. Uh, I think it's Robert Carlyle. I think because he, he there was this thing about him being miscast, wasn't there? As uh, okay, Bigley, yeah. What do you think, boys? Who was originally supposed to play Renton in Train Spotting? I've got a feeling that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got nothing to lose if you know if I'm wrong and you're wrong, you're still ahead. I think so. It was you and Bremner. Uh, he played him on stage in uh, in Scotland. I think he was quite miffed that he, he wasn't cast and had to have his arm twisted to actually go on and play Spud. Um, last one. Now, back in 96, everyone was off their tits. Um, and I, I was at Tribal Gathering that year. Uh, it's a big annual dance festival. But who headlined? Was it the Chemical Brothers, Black Grape or Daft Punk? And Matt and Steve, you can go first. Well, Who headlined the biggest off-your-head festival of the year? Chemical right, Brothers, Black Grape, or Daft Punk? Don't think it was Daft Punk. I think they're too mm. new. They're too new for '96. Yeah, Black um, Grape with Sean Ryder off his tits all his life, so that kind of makes sense. Chemical Brothers seem a bit oh new for headlining '96. I reckon a middle one. Black Grape. Yeah. Okay, okay. Black Grape it is. Yeah, my, my first instinct was Black Grape as well. It was Black Grape. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, Owen... Yeah, I've lost. You, you skipped one and... Uh, Matt, Steve, you're the winners. Well done. Well, hey. So what are we going to get Owen to watch now? Travesty, that was. Travesty. Nothing yet. <laughs> Nothing yet. I'll give you the, the tiebreaker, if just, uh, which I did have, Steve. Yeah. spotting one. What was its worldwide box office in pounds? Huh. Never guessed, Owen? Mm, mm, 96 million just because it's the same year Matt, Steve mm, we'll take the over 97 48 yeah. got on 48. a budget fuck all it's still, it was still made for nothing wasn't it mm. shall we just move on to the Screen, Screen Actors Guild Awards which happened in the last week or so um, over the weekend and Winona Ryder was off her face that video of her just is hilarious isn't it she's chewing her own ear off <laughs> I saw something that said about how she'd gone through every human emotion in 30 seconds. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with her. Yeah. Um, but that was, of course, for Stranger Things that um, won. Um, and also resulted in a glorious speech, so I hear. I haven't actually... Oh, uh, it's just someone harping on about politics as well. I just want to hear about his doing films and TV and that. Yeah. Usually it's his own soapbox to protest at Trump and things that are happening. Um, but yeah, Stranger Things won best cast of the TV drama series, beating off The Crown and Downton Abbey, Game of Thrones and Westworld. Good. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Because the others sound terrible, and I really enjoyed uh, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. It was great. Um, but yeah, so basically, there was an because um, it's the Screen Actors Guild, the SAG Awards. Uh, it is mainly about the performances as opposed to any other quality, you know, any quality in the movies and stuff. So, uh, were there any anything there that kind of jumped out at you guys? Anything that it seems. Well- Best male actor in TV comedy series, William H. Macy for Shameless. And I didn't realise the American version of Shameless was so popular. Neither did I. I didn't realise it was that I would have thought it would be a thing that had done a couple of series and died. I know. Mm. It, it, it seems like, to have gone like the American office. Seasons? It's yeah, been going seemed... forever. And I watched the I think I watched the first couple of episodes and it was pretty bang on to the UK one. It was mm. kind of but it was weird. I couldn't it kept pulling me out of it because I couldn't adjust to the Americans doing it hmm well I, I mean I, I've only caught bits of Shameless uh, you know the odd episode here and there I never watched it religiously uh, but it seemed about as British as a show can get so I was always a bit sceptical about how it would have translated but clearly you know must have they must be doing something right um, and, and The Crown picked up a few awards for, for Best Male Actor for John Lithgow and Best Female Actor for Claire Foy. Um, not one I've seen. It doesn't appeal to me at all. I thought it would just be like really by the books, paint <laughs> by numbers, boring TV about the royals. But apparently it's very good and very popular. It's not very good. I mean, that's an, very, that is an exaggeration of... I mean, I'm only about three episodes in, but I'm... I have, I've just sacked it off. It's basically pretty dresses, sets, costumes, and oh, the royals, oh, what drama! And I don't, I don't care about them. I don't care about the story. The characters aren't particularly well written. It's kind of reliant on you knowing who they are and stuff. I just, yeah, it's a um, vanity project as far as I can tell. It's Not for me. appealing to the same crowd as Downton Abbey would. Any uh, any Oscar pointers there in the main two categories? The best actor and uh, best actress for films. Yeah, well, I don't know if Denzel will do it. Uh, I have to admit. Well, I said best... to you earlier, I watched most of it last night. Um, it's just Denzel in his garden talking, and he talks a lot. It's like yeah. a machine gun going off, and uh, even even after I dozed off, just listening to it, it made no difference. You didn't have to actually see what was happening on the screen to kind of understand the film. Mm. But yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a chore to be honest. Yeah, this is Fences, right? So this yeah. is the film that's that has been adapted from a stage play. Yeah, and that, I didn't know that before, and that makes absolute sense now. Yeah, yeah, um, very wordy. very dialogue heavy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's a clip they keep showing from it. Uh, with him and Viola Davis in the garden, uh, shouting at each other, and she said something like she st- stood by him all the time. She was right there, or something like that. I've seen that clip so many times now. I feel like I don't need to see the film. It, that's pretty much it. it because it's just him in his garden. Yeah, I think I've got it. I think I know. Which is a very obnoxious thing to say, but yeah, it's about two hours and twenty minutes or something like yeah, that, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know how far I got, but I was I fell asleep watching it. And then yeah. obviously Emma Stone with La La Land. Mm, mm. which I'm kind of fine with I'm fine with I think it's just uh, I did see Jackie this week and Natalie Portman was um, very good in that in what is a very boring film Um, (laughs) you know I can slag off I can slag off Essex Space Bin but at least it's not boring you know Uh, Jackie was just 
I'm fed up of them. I'm fed up of these movies. They I'm not going to go on a rant again, but I'm just sick of conventional blueprinted shit, quite frankly. <laughs> Do you remember what question I asked everyone around award season last season that stumped everyone? Go on. So right, in, in the craze, mm-hmm. Tom Hardy played two characters. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Could he get a nomination for being really good as Reggie Cray, but not? But if he was really shit at Ronnie Cray, didn't get a nomination for that one, rather than just the film as a whole? Do, do you get nominated on your, you know, so it's your performance? So if he got nominated for that film, but he was awful as one Cray, amazing at the other one, would he get a nomination for just that one? Or would they just say it's the whole film? Didn't Phil Sharman come up with an answer to that? Yeah, and I'm didn't sure he, he was actually, wrong. Probably. He researched it, though, didn't he? He came up with it and said that no, Did he, he can only... remember. <laughs> I think he could only be nominated for one. Yeah. For, for one character. No, yeah. for one performance in the film. It's the same person doing the performance in the film. Just because yeah. he's offering more than... It's like if somebody's exactly. playing schizophrenic or whatever, it's still that, that actor delivering a performance in that film. Exactly. James McAvoy in Split can only be nominated for well, one. That's, that's slightly <laughs> different, though, because he's playing one person with multiple personalities, whereas Tom Hardy played two distinctly separate people. But it, it, as Paul said, he's just, it's, you're nominated for your performance, not Should we just stop doing your... this debate again that got us nowhere yes. last year? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's pretty last year. Yeah. <laughs> what, on the subject of performances, what the fuck is Emily Blunt doing in that <laughs> category <laughs> for the girl on the train? I'm presuming you guys have seen it. Yes, yeah, it yeah. wasn't wasn't great, was it? It was a it was a really bad thriller, and she was okay. But I mean, th- that seems really bottom of the barrel. Yeah, trying to not... find a performance to fill that category. That with. film in general just annoys me. Never mind her performance because it's quite yeah. clearly designed to sort of like light a fire inside of scorned women everywhere. Like anyone who's had any bad experience with men just love shit like that it proper winds me up what, what I is that book what? as well and makes it even worse because it's just it's nothing like the book it, hmm. you know it's set in the UK for starters and she, I think she goes into like Waterloo every day I mean it worry but it's it's just so far removed from a British bird who's doing that to an American there's ma- I don't know why it just it just really didn't sit well with me at all hmm. it kept pulling me out the film it was awful <laughs> Time now for what we've been watching. We have a look at films uh, we've seen in the last seven days that aren't going to be featured in the main new release section of the podcast. And Paul, what have you seen? Um, I've seen a Swedish film which is up for the best foreign Oscar called uh, A Man Called Uve, um, which is about a miserable, cantankerous old bastard. Mm. I, I, no idea why I would. Yeah, this. why did that appeal to you, Paul? Well, who knows? <laughs> he he lives in um like a shelter, not a sheltered housing complex, but I don't know how to describe it. The newest thing we would have. It's not council, maybe like a council association or something. Mm. Uh, and he's on like a committee looking after the the paths, the garages, the pathways. He puts all the signs up. It's very regimented. Everything has to be done by the book. If you drop a fag butt, he'll be on your case. His his wife passes away. Uh, he goes to her, her grave every day. Things then get worse for him after his wife dies. He loses his job. 
and he thinks, fuck it, I'm going to kill myself. And he tries to kill himself and fails. And you get this recurring theme of him constantly trying to kill himself using various different methods and all of them going tits. Then we get this family who move in next door to him. Uh, the, The mother there of the family is of Iranian descent. Her husband's an idiot and they've got two kids. And it's basically about the impact that this family has upon his life. And I know it sounds kind of maybe a little bit trite and we've seen all this before, but I just found it wonderful. It was really, really, if you had to kind of pick your perfect Sunday afternoon film, this would be it because it's, it's really funny. It's really heartfelt, very heartwarming. It, 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 it looks beautiful. It's the, the acting is just off the hook and I can see why it's up for the Oscar and I just absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it, you, it's quite long, but then it, it's worthwhile investing the time. You get these flashbacks. So, for example, we know his wife's dead. We get to see how that happened. When people come to his house, you see the kitchen's been lowered. And he says, oh, that's for my wife. We flash back to find out you know, how and why that kitchen was lowered. They, they don't have any kids. We find out why that happened. And... And it works really, really well. The flashbacks are not there to kind of pad out the timing. It's, it's, it's really engaging and really interesting to find out all the kind of pieces of his life as they fit together in a jigsaw. And then you overlay his, his current situation, all the people around him. Um, and it's, yeah, amazing. I can't recommend it enough. One of the best films I've seen this year. Okay. Um, Owen, what have you seen? Uh, I watched a film called Sadako vs. Kayako, and I'm probably pronouncing those incorrectly. Um, basically, it's The Ring versus The Grudge, which I mentioned at the end of the podcast last week as a recommendation um, because I hadn't seen it yet, but it had just been added to Shudder, the horror film streaming service. Um, so for those who don't know, Sadako is the demon from... The Ring or Ringu, and Keiko is the demon girl from Juon, The Grudge. Uh, it also features Toshio, who I think I probably more associate with The Grudge, which is the little sort of grey blue boy who has the dry lips that he licks and is just a bit creepy and weird, right? It has all of those in there, and the, the sort of premise of the film is they're going to have a fight. So. Just before I move on to explain the film a little bit more, in terms of J-horror, these Japanese horror films, presumably, I know, Paul, you're a big fan. Matt, I know you were working in cinemas around the time. Is your... What's what's your view on J-horror? I kind of liked them at the time from the perspective of there was this wave of foreign cinema that was really infiltrating Mm -hmm. the UK, whether it's through um, independent cinema or the sort of DVD import market, which is less and less prevalent these days with streaming and Um, Blu-ray. There was a massive sort of scene for it. And so people were watching a lot of movies back in the sort of late nineties that they wouldn't have normally tapped into and stuff like the ring and the grudge and whatnot were definitely Mm -hmm. high amongst those. So it was actually quite an exciting sort of movement in cinema yes. mm-hmm. um, I think we're kind of past it a little bit now I mean I'm still a fan of foreign cinema in general but um, I think I'm probably 
gone more mainstream and the fact that I'm quite prepared to wait for the American remake, which is almost inevitable <laughs> of any decent Asian movie that comes out these days. Um, so I haven't seen a new one right. in, in quite a long time. Yeah, but things like Dark Water and, you know, I guess Battle Royale can kind of come into it a little bit with those that craze of an audition, maybe some of the Takeshi Mike yeah, films. And good so, examples. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Paul, you're, I know you, you're probably a bigger fan of horror films than me even, and particularly sort of Asian movies. Mm-hmm. And J-horror, does it do anything for you? It did. I mean, all of, anything with a, you know, a girl with long black hair appearing mm-hmm. either out the telly around the corner out the wall it but that kind of shtick is it, it's sort of it's passe death, now. It's, it, it has yeah. been beaten to death so how i'm i'm really <laughs> curious to see how they how they're dealing with it in 2016 and if that's if that's still the same shtick okay right well hmm i, I missed the early craze in the sort of noughties um i only got into the some of these films a bit later on in fact i think i saw the ring remake before i saw ringu and um the grudge as well for example i i saw that even after i'd seen ringu and uh i didn't particularly think it was a good film i thought it was scary and it had atmosphere but it's not a great story there's not so much plot but then the point of it wasn't to be, to do that. So anyway, yeah. So I came to these late, but I had a kind of I, I kind of liked them. But even now, you know, I only saw them like five six years ago. Uh, even now, I'm a bit bored of them. And so, yeah, I went into this hoping it would be uh, or expecting even a camp kind of Freddy versus Jason esque horror comedy, which it so nearly is. But I don't think it quite achieves that. And I know that we slag off as well Lionsgate and all those, you know, New Line Cinema, all those by-the-numbers horrors that... uh, PG-13 horrors by accountants. PG, exactly, you said (laughs) it, exactly. Those, I know we slag those off, but at least they often have a sense of direction and storytelling as part of it. Whether it's basic and it's just a repetition of stuff that's been before is another matter. Uh, this doesn't really have that. <laughs> it's kind of like a meandering amalgamation of two weak horror films. Um, one about a girl who accidentally watches a cursed videotape and one about a girl whose family move into the house opposite a haunted house where people die when they enter. Um, neither of which are very good. They're not particularly well told. They're not really that interesting. They're kind of choppy, a bit bloated even, which is weird when you think it's like a film that's about an hour and a half um, and there's two of these stories going on at the same time. There's an awful lot of nothing. Um, And there's an awful lot of uh, dialogue that just doesn't contribute anything. Not in terms of character, not in terms of atmosphere, not in terms of story progression, nothing. It's just a bit weird. And so... It doesn't really work particularly well, and it would have benefited from perhaps a stronger producer who was involved with it. Uh, it's uh, yeah, and I think as well that what shows is that it's a prime example of marketing trumping the product. If you'll excuse my use of the word trumping there, yeah, given the current political climate. But what I mean literally mean is that 
like this film one of the things that happened with Sadako versus Keiko is they did a deal with Hello Kitty to make some merchandise. Hello Kitty and The Ring and the Grudge. God. Yeah. Couldn't be more late 90s, could you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, perhaps not. Um, but also what happened with this, which is an interesting story, which I didn't realise until after I'd watched the film, but makes complete sense now, is the original trailer was released on the 1st of April as an April Fool's joke, right? It wasn't really going to be a thing, but then the reaction to it was so positive and so strong that by the time December came around, they were like, yeah, fuck it, we're making this movie now. People clearly want to see The Ring versus The Grudge, so we'll just give them that. And so there's barely any effort like been made into turning it into a good film because it's not good, it is bad. And there's no like in- intentional humour so far as I could see. Not a- At least nothing like Freddy versus Jason. Um, although there is one death scene which did remind me of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the sequels, like Dream Warriors or something. As you see, like one guy is headbutted by an exorcist who's possessed. And like for a split second on screen, you see his like giant swollen face as he just plummets to the floor. And that really looked like it was done as a humorous nod to Freddy versus Jason, right? Which is kind of cool, I guess. Um, There is another problem actually that that reminded me of. There's hardly any death scenes on screen, right? And that's, that's the problem with a film like this. You know, it's, you're meant to see two demented demons battling each other, trying to be the one who can possess and kill this girl. Um, but just so much of it happens off screen. And then the finale to it is a massive letdown. They just didn't commit. And I guess I wasn't really expecting them to say, well, this one wins and this one's better than the other. But I don't know. It just kind of petered out. And I was a little a little bit disappointed. That said, it's watchable. It's weirdly watchable. <laughs> Because you just want yeah, to see the fight. Yeah, they're going to put that on fight. the poster. Yeah. No, watchable. It's, not, it's watchable because you want... They've got you. The hook is they're going to have these two things fight. And they do tease them. And they do tease a fight that's going to bre- that's brewing. And as cliched as it is, as full of like the most basic tropes they could s- scramble together into this film, you do want to see its conclusion. So it keeps you, keeps you going, but it's just... Um, I wouldn't subscribe to Shudder. I wouldn't pay the subscription to Shudder just to see it, put it that way. Okay. Um, this week I saw a film called Hidden Figures, and to do so, I flew to America. Honest. You yeah. were sent a copy of the screener from no, the flew, Academy? No, I flew to America. <laughs> right, okay. Because of its UK release date, um, it's not going to be out in time probably for us to give it a decent review ahead of the Oscar preview or Oscar review special how did um, you get past Homeland Security I thought you had a Somalian passport <laughs> well yeah. I tunneled under the wall <laughs> <laughs> like it, like Escape to Victory which I actually watched this week <laughs> on Sunday while I was at work cause it was on um, I someone tunneled into the changing rooms and, and got me in nice or did out. you see the um, Sunday sport thing about the wall? No. There's yes. Mexican yes. prostitutes are going to drill glory holes in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's a novel approach. 
God, I can't wait to see that gag on film. Yes, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You know it. Um, Yes, I saw um, Hidden Figures, which was a film about three African-American mathematicians um, at NASA in the the 60s um, and them trying to forge their way in NASA and trying to get the roles they want, the jobs they want, the education they want, while being both women and African-American, while obviously being in a segregated society at the time um, and going for jobs that at the time certainly weren't for African-American people, certainly weren't for females either. So they kind of hamstrung on, on three counts. Um, based on true stories as well, um, starring um, some other than uh, Kevin Costner, who was kind of the, playing the head of NASA, Kirsten Dunst, who was just kind of a supporting role, and Jim Parsons, a supporting role. Three actresses that I didn't really know anything about. Um, Taraji P. Henson, who I think is in Empire, probably best known for Empire, um, the show that's on E4. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Octavia Spencer and Janelle Mo- Monet. I probably butchered those pronunciations. <laughs> So, um, no, it's fantastic. I thought the the, the three central performances uh, of the of the women were fantastic. I mean, Kevin Costner was good in a very very much minor supporting role, but just as kind of good as he has been in films lately. Um, but the three main women who who are going about um, trying to make their way, trying to prove their worth, trying to get around obstacles put in their way, which just seem extremely when you when you're looking at it from now it just seems completely ridiculous and you can't even imagine what it would be like to live through something like that. You know, even as a, as a white male sort of experience where people are being physically segregated from other people just because of their colour. Mm. I mean, Paul probably lived through it, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> No, we just segregate people by age. Yeah, yeah, like Paul. Mm. <laughs> but no, so, so yeah, it's 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 really it's, it's really interesting. Plus, it features the space race, which is something that I love anyway. I love space and NASA and astronauts and all that kind of thing. So that that playing into it probably gave the the story a added layer of interest. Where if it was a more boring job they were going for perhaps wouldn't have held as much interest. Does that make mm. sense? Mm. If they yeah, weren't trying to get a job in NASA, they were trying to get a job in something, something as important as NASA, but not as interesting, then the film might not have held as much interest to me, but that's by the by, really. Um, uh, yeah, because like it's based on a true story. So, uh, um, you know, doing the maths for John Glenn's first space flight, um, and he actually wanted... Um, What's her name? Johnson. Catherine. Uh, Catherine Johnson is the, is the one played by Taraji P. Henson. He actually wanted her to verify the the maths for his his face launch. He wouldn't have done it without her doing it. Mm. Um, but no, I, I definitely recommend um, everyone watch it before the. I don't. I just because I I could see it picking up perhaps a best supporting actress Oscar for someone maybe, but it's going to be tough against some of the other films. Um, I don't think it's going to trouble best film or best actor or actress. 
Um, certainly wasn't trouble best actor, but it's definitely worth a watch. It's definitely better than some of the other biopics that are out ahead of around Oscar season. Cool, I've got it to watch, Steve. I, I, now you've said that, I'm definitely going to give it a poke. Oh, don't listen to my recommendations. <laughs> I don't want to Wait, if it's against you, no, I don't mean it in a nasty way. <laughs> that means if I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Because <laughs> normally these Oscar films can be quite boring. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's not, it's not boring. Saying, it's if, not yeah, boring like, in the slightest. Exactly. So now you've said all that, I'm genuinely, I'm, I'm quite happy to watch it. Um, and um, Matt, what have you seen this week? Yeah, so like you, I've been uh, sort of flying around the world watching movies as well. <laughs> I took a, a jet over to Japan uh, to see Shin Godzilla, or more commonly referred to as Godzilla Resurgence in the West. Um, Matt, which... did you pick up that box of Japanese monkey porn for me? <laughs> I did. I'll put it in the post for you right away, mate. Cheers, Bella. You got a pack of uh, used girls' knickers out of the vending machine? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm not a sex tourist. <laughs> <laughs> that that's some lunch that is it is oh, but this is this is commitment to the cause well, and I'm a big Godzilla fan panties. yeah mm. I was getting sick of waiting for it to, to come out over here and, and see it in a local cinema which was unfortunately never going to happen but um, yeah for those who aren't aware it's the 31st Godzilla movie out of the whole Japanese and American uh, go at the series and uh, it's co-directed by Hideki Anno and Shinji Higuchi who are the creative forces behind the popular anime and comic uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion which I'm sure a few of our listeners will have heard of or perhaps seen before. Um, Evangelion I think. Is, is that how you pronounce it? I think so yeah. Okay. Evangelion. So uh, that might give you a slight idea of, of where the tone of the, the movie is heading because they are quite weird and wonderful uh, in that series. So it's not just going to be your traditional sort of Godzilla stomp-a-thon as he just smashes up the city, although you do get quite a bit of that. It, it gets a little bit more sophisticated than that. So uh, the premise of the story, kind of similar in tone to the very first Godzilla film, which is a take on the the mental state of japan following the uh, american atom bombs at the end of the second world war this kind of takes over from the fukushima nuclear accident in the uh was about five or six years ago now Mm. it seems like such a long time ago but it's not in reality uh and a country sort of recovering from the sort of paranoia of that disaster and their coexistence and reliance on on nuclear energy to survive in their everyday life and where this film really differs from traditional Godzilla movies is it, it casts all of those aside as if they hadn't happened. So this is like almost a brand new reboot, uh, retelling, reimagining of the whole Godzilla thing. And um, the city comes under attack, and we're referring to Tokyo here, of course, by a monster which is enormous and scary, but is nothing like what you might imagine Godzilla to be like in your head. And I'm not going to spoil it too much, but what he starts off as and what he ends up being uh, uh, very different. Um, There's a sort of evolution of the monster as the film goes along before he eventually becomes this all-powerful and destructive force uh, where he, he can essentially evolve to fight the threat of any type of attack that... Uh, humanity compose against it and do it quite rapidly so it almost seems indestructible but as as they always do they eventually find a way to uh, to fell the beast 
somehow, however unrealistic that might be. Although the science behind it's quite interesting and, and it's somewhat plausible, but um, you wouldn't expect this particular monster to go down in the way that it does, put it that way. But um, one of the problems with, with Godzilla films in general, and I've seen most of them, is that everyone is there to see the monster. And any scene that doesn't contain the monster is usually drab, disappointing, and boring. And they have to put a lot of those in to sort of pad out a Godzilla movie. You know, they tend to be 90 minutes to two hours long, and you might only get 15, 20 minutes of the monster. So everything in between is usually pretty boring. This film does a much better job of that. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but the whole political spectrum that surrounds the movie and it kind of focuses on the incompetence of the Japanese government and the various authorities in, oh, Godzilla's attacking this part of the city. Whose legislation does it fall under and who needs to sign off before we can do anything? And by the time they get around to making a decision, it's too late. Bad shit's already happened and something's been destroyed and loads of people have been killed. So they're kind of paralyzed by bureaucracy. Um, right up until the end when they all start to eventually sort of team together and find a solution but that's when it's kind of taken out of their hands by uh, foreign powers let's say who are more concerned about what might go on once it's destroyed Japan Um, Erwin I think you've had a look at this as well and the political (laughs) element of this it is a little bit interesting a little bit quirky and it, it does sort of set it aside from other Godzilla movies I think what did you think about it? Uh, hi, um, oh man. So like, it's interesting you mentioned about the bureaucracy because the thing I thought about it as I was watching it is it was very Kafkaesque. You know, it's all very much about the bureaucracy, about people sitting around in boardrooms trying to decide what to do whilst a raging monster comes along and topples the buildings in their capital city. It's kind of, that's... I think I said in a review that it's it's basically like if Kafka wrote the screenplay and then directed it on speed because you have like the juxtaposition of this slow process that's held back by ticker tape and, you know, waiting on signatures um, against the direction, like the actual aesthetic of it, because it's it's. I, I read that the director, I can't, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, I read that what he basically wanted was for everybody to speak super quickly. Everyone had to keep talking like this. If they started talking slowly, then he was going to cut them completely from the film and they wouldn't be in it at all. So everyone has to talk very fast. So even though it's full of lots of dialogue, which is tedious, it kind of wants to get through it quite quickly. So it wants to show you this slow, boring process, but not actually spend any time on it which is kind of an interesting way for it to to pan out because it is a monster movie, ultimately. And it is a Godzilla movie and the Godzilla fans, I assume, you know, this is me making assumptions, will, will presumably want Godzilla in it. So they want to see the kind of destruction and the fallout um, and, you know, the eventual, not necessarily heroics, but saving the day kind of thing do you, know, do you know what i mean it's i think it's a film that can be enjoyed by anyone who suffers from add basically if you've got <laughs> attention deficit disorder doesn't matter because everything you need to know is sped up it's like watching a film at two times speed yeah i would agree with that it is kind of paced quite well despite having a ton of dialogue in it yeah. which traditional godzilla movies suffer from in a bad way but i think what they're trying to get at there is that the ineptitude of government when things go yeah. wrong is almost as terrifying as the monster itself 
Yeah. And I mean, they can't get yeah. anything done, basically, which dooms us all. It's basically, it shows as well, like, the, the Godzilla creature is evolving at each stage. It evolves quicker than they can do anything about it. So it's like, it's... It's like a reflection on the fact that they're they're just basically sitting around chatting, and as they they in the time it takes for them to make a decision, it's changed. The situation has evolved, and it's bigger and stronger and worse. And so I think it's quite clever. I mean, I like it in concept. I like the film in concept, but I mean, the only other I mean, it's a weird comparison, but it was like Hardcore Henry for me in that both films made me di- feel dizzy. In very different ways. Like Hardcore Henry, I just couldn't keep my eyes focused on it because it was like watching a third-person action shooter thing. Whereas this was just so fast. It was so quick. I was all over the place. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit discombobulating. And, and, <laughs> yeah, it's a good and, word and to be it. fairness, in terms of how you would sort of rate this movie, a Godzilla can never be a 10 out of 10 film just <laughs> based on what it is. Although the the original is very close to it. The original's a fantastic anti-war movie. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. It is a classic. Um, The rest of them can't sort of reach that emotional high note of that one because once it's been done, it's been done. Um, So you can't rate Shin Godzilla amongst all-time great movies at all, but within the Godzilla universe, it's a very, very strong entry. And if you are remotely a fan of Godzilla or let's say the American one from a couple of years ago left a bad taste in your mouth, I think you would enjoy this one a lot more. And I think it's probably created an issue now for uh, whoever it is who's behind the American one. I can't remember the name of the the company who did it now. But um, now that there's a a Western audience for this latest Japanese incarnate of Godzilla, um, the expectations now are going to be very different and a lot higher for these Godzilla sequels that are coming out over the next four or five years. Um, so they're going to have uh, a bit of a, a hurdle to get over with that. The expectations now are much higher than they would have been just off the back of that last Godzilla movie. But I really where, like it. If you get a chance to see it, try and check it out. Where do um, American versions of Godzilla stand in Japanese cinema Godzilla's <laughs> canon? They, they hate them, don't they? They they despise them. Um, the name of this one, Shin Godzilla, the Shin refers to loosely as real or ultimate Godzilla, basically almost dismissing the last American one out of hand. Um, they find that the American take on it is much more less traditional, even though I think the last one did a much better job than the, the one from the mid-90s. I like the one with Matthew Broderick in. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no, you yeah, dude. Ferris Bueller and Godzilla. It was awesome. <laughs> no, no, no. There was, there was a film in the early 2000s, which was the, the last Japanese Godzilla before this one called Godzilla Final Wars, where they basically had Godzilla square off against all the monsters in, in the Godzilla universe, plus... The creature called Zilla, which is what they refer to as the American Godzilla. So they they won't call it Godzilla because they think it's an inferior monster. So they just called it Zilla. They have a big showdown near the Sydney Opera House, and Godzilla just destroys it within seconds. Just makes it totally irrelevant. So they put it into canon and then destroyed it. So that that's what they think of it. Isn't there a weird thing about like its name is actually Gojira, and it's not like someone doing a dodgy Japanese accent but it was like an amalgamation of two things wasn't it it was like yeah, god and something to do with like god incarnate and, and yeah something. yeah um so that's what it is referred to in japan as, as gojira uh, yeah 
So and, basically, by calling it Zilla, it's a, it's even more of an insult, isn't it? It's a dismissive, yeah. like they don't get it. Precisely, it's just a total afterthought as far as they're concerned. They're not interested. And there's there's not a lot that's traditional Godzilla about that movie. That sh- that was just a generic monster movie mm. with a Godzilla brand on it, and you know, did the box office, but it was so bad it was never going to get a sequel. So, but then eventually it kind of did. Mm. In our new release section this week, we are going to review Train Spotting 2, or T2 Train Spotting, the sequel, obviously, to Train Spotting, um, starring. Um, the sequel well, to, to Terminator 2. Terminator 2 Train Spotting. Well, that would be a completely different film. I beg me, could very well be a Terminator. <laughs> He's not far off it. Next person to do a Terminator joke about T2 is first up against the wall. <laughs> But yes, it brings back uh, Rent and Six Boys, Spud and Begbie, uh, 20 years on from the events of the first film after Renton nicked all the money off them and skipped the country. Um, Paul, as our resident having Welsh train spotting expert fan, this isn't a um, version of the sequel to the book or the book sequel of porno, is it? No, it's it's not. And do you know what? Let, should we get that out of the way first? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I've I mean, I love Irving Welsh. I think on the podcast recently, I said I met him recently. Lovely bloke. Um, talks about the Blade artist. And that kind of leads into the whole train spotting universe in the literary sense. You've got sort of glue, train spotting, skag boys, porno, a decent ride, and most recently, the Blade artist. And within that literary universe, it, it's very, very different now to what's been delivered in the cinematic universe. Um, to give a little bit of history here, back in 09, Danny Boyle first said that he wanted to do this film and it was going to be set sort of 10 years after, it was going to base it on porno. Then there was four years of silence and 2013, Danny Boyle came out and said he wanted to do this film based on porno. 2014 it took uh, until um, Ewan McGregor and, and Danny Boyle made up after their falling out over the beach then it took to 2015 before they'd actually confirmed they were going to do it. Then 2016, it was filmed. And finally, now in 2017, it was released. But the problem is, um, Danny Boyle's original statements about everything being based on porno, that's set 10 years after train spotting. But we're now 20 years on. Um, and not, not to put a damper on things, but I just wanted to read you the synopsis from I've got my like first edition porno book here from 2002, and I'm going to read this to you and and see you can see immediately the difference between what that's about and what the film's about. In the fag end of his youth, Simon Sickboy Williamson is back in his native Edinburgh after a long spell in London, having failed spectacularly as a hustler, pimp, husband, father, and businessman. Sickboy taps into an opportunity which to him represents one last row of the dice. To enable the scam to work out, Sickboy needs bedfellows. A desirable one may be the lovely Nicky Fuller-Smith, a young student with enough ambition and ego and troubles to rival his own. However, to realise his dream of directing and producing a pornographic movie, Sickboy gets teamed up with his old pal and fellow exile Mark Renton and a motley crew that includes the city's favourite ex-aerated water salesman, Juice Terry Lawson. 
In the world of porno, however, nothing is straightforward. A sick boy and Renton find out that they have unresolved issues to address concerning the increasingly unhinged Frank Begbie, the troubled drug-addled spud, and most of all with each other. I mean, that's not what this is about, is it? Not in any way, shape or form. So you really need to divorce the kind of the books from the films now, which I'm fine with, but for like for huge kind of fans of, of his work, it, you, it's a huge kind of hurdle to, to get over. But isn't Danny Boyle on record as saying he doesn't like porno? He is, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense then that he's waiting till the right time to do Train Spotting 2 because it'll be enough time where he can distance himself from the book sequel and just write whatever movie or adapt whatever bits of that book that he wants to adapt. I think he doesn't like it because, well, we, we had Escobar Walker on last time. Yeah. Porno is very reminiscent of um, stuff that Escobar Walker writes. It's absolutely filthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, completely and utterly off the hook, insane, the stuff that goes on in that in that book. And, and just, just, But even in the back of my mind, all I can think about is, oh, why didn't they do that? You know, mm. why didn't they have this character in? But, you know, once I kind of sat down and I knew, and I just literally had to kind of try and wipe all that stuff from my mind and just go with what they were going to present. And I still loved it. Yeah, I mean, I loved it as well. I really thought this is the film of the year so far. And uh, it, it surprised me, actually, because, I mean, I, I am a huge fan of Danny Boyle's previous stuff. Um, I think I saw Train Spotting when I was probably a bit too young, you know. I think I, I saw it when it came out on video initially. So whenever that would have been, 97, 98, something like that. And, I, you know, I would have been, what, 12, 13? I was terrified of it. You know, the baby crawling along the ceiling and all the weird trippy bits just completely freaked me out. But um, I probably didn't get it. So I rewatched it this week for the well, last week for the first time since then. It's it's a brilliant movie. I get it. I see why people love it so much. But I think watching them so close together also really works because you don't need the time apart from them. They're very much connected and not and I don't think it necessarily needed to be a completely different story. What what Train Spotting 2 is about is about dealing with time and distance from the previous film so you don't yeah. need to the, the, to actually live that time and distance it works it, it's almost like they made it the next like a year later do you know what i mean is that making sense it doesn't matter that the actual physical time between them is so great yeah it no, could have I... been made a, a year later it could have been set a year later it's that... about dealing with with that form. yeah i mean i was 26 at the time and and it was, you know, it was, it was almost like a defining piece of art for me. It captured everything of all my experiences of the time, obviously, apart from the heroine, but, the, you know, the friendships, the isolation, the rebellion, the self-destruction, and then moving forward 20 years, you know, the disappointment, regret, and wondering what the fuck have you been up to for the last 20 years? It, you yeah, know, it really yeah. resonated with me. It was really powerful then mm-hmm. and really powerful now. There is definitely that aspect to it. Like, they make no bones about it. They don't. I mean, they don't look back at the heroin stuff with rose-tinted glasses. What they look back on is the camaraderie, the friendship and the relationships that they had and then lost 
Mm. And I think it's that's very different to them looking back at doing all the drugs and what a blast that was. Because the films, I mean, even train spotting's more. It's about more than just some people shooting heroin. Of course it is. It's yeah. it's it's all about it's all about friendship. That's you know exactly. that's that's absolutely its core value. It's like I mean I guess it's very obnoxious again of me. I'll be very obnoxious on the podcast today. But it's like how we have film as the common language that we talk about on the podcast. Mm. Right? It doesn't matter. We're just mates who get together and chat. Film just happens to be the thing we chat about because that's why we're here. Um, but in train spotting, heroin is is the the common language. Yeah, and back just, in '96, when you know the people I was with, it was all about you know going to these big big raves and getting off your fucking nut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> we, but it was all yeah. We, there was a common kind of glue that binded us. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas it, it, it's the relationships that were then forged anyway. Or you know, it's, I mean, they, again, this one goes even further back, doesn't it? Because you don't really get in train spotting much about them as kids. This one shows actually sick boy rent, and they were they've been. Mates forever. Yeah. They've been together as pals. And it's, it, I, I don't know, I quite like that about it. It looks further back than just the original. I, did, I just thought it was a really bloody good film. And also, fucking funny. I just laughed my ass off at well, some Well, Trainspotting is probably one of the funniest films ever made. And this is you know, near, not quite as funny, but it's, it's up there. They are both, I always look yeah. at them as comedies sort of comedy dramas they're very gross comedies not gross as in like you know american frat boy gross but as gross as in the way that you're looking at humanity sometimes through them mm. but when people you ask people their favorite comedies nobody's gonna say train spot no, i no, do it's dark it's dark and i think this one isn't as dark it's very much more of an introspective examination of of the characters and the lives that they've had, but um, it's still funny. It's just well, so, let's bring so, the others in here. I want to see what. Yeah, I'm going on. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh God, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like it nearly as much as, as you two do. I did enjoy it, um, but I've got bones to pick with it. I really love Train Spotting and watched it again at the weekend before we went and saw this, and it's still as impactful as it was back then. And it's even. Though they were using older music sometimes in train spotting, the 20 years it's passed has made it even more cool. <laughs> so when you're trying to live up to that, it's very difficult, I think. But um, one thing that immediately sprung to mind as I was watching this, and I was thinking it as I was watching it, it's not something that I've necessarily considered after the fact. But um, when you have such a large gap between um, the, a first iteration and a later one, I think they found it difficult personally to recapture their presence of mind in those characters. They didn't feel authentic enough to me. Giving an example of what I'm talking about, because I'm sure you'll probably disagree in regards to train spotting, because you obviously really enjoyed it. But I used to be a big fan of, of bottom, you know, of rip mail mm -hmm. and Adrian Edmondson. And they did the TV show. Then they did a couple of live shows and they went away for a few years and rip mail nearly killed himself on a quad bike. And then when he came back, after so many years, the they were still funny, but the characters were lost. It wasn't ever quite the same. And I didn't feel like I was watching Renton and Sick Boy and, and particularly Begbie. He seemed like an absolute caricature of, the, of himself, nowhere near as terrifying, even though he had more reason to be angry than ever. Um, I but think 20 years has passed. I thought, I thought, 
I actually totally believed I was watching those four characters just 20 years. 20 years is a long time. It is. That's a it's lot a of life experiences under their belt. They would <laughs> so have let, changed. Let me expand on that a little bit. Go on, <laughs> then. I thought, and maybe this was just me, but I thought that Johnny Lee Miller's accent was completely different than it was in Train Spotting. Didn't sound quite the same to me at all. Are you sure you're not thinking back to him doing James Bond when he does his Connery accent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't sound quite right to me. And obviously, if you haven't done a Scottish accent for that one, then fair enough, you might lose the exact tone that you had, but it didn't seem quite the same. And the other thing was, when I watched Train Spotting, you know, as a teenager, when it first came out, I knew nothing about Ewan McGregor. I knew nothing about Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan Bremner, or Robert Carlyle. Now, Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Johnny Lee Miller is Sherlock. And I found it very difficult to get that out of my head as I was watching them on here because I took them at face value in the first film because I knew nothing about the people portraying those roles. Now, I'm very much in my head that they are these characters now because that's what they've done for more recently and for a prolonged period of time. So I thought Ewan McGregor was playing himself. Johnny Lee Miller was something else completely, although I enjoyed his performance in general. He didn't seem quite like the same character to me. So I found it difficult to sort of get into. And like I said, I was most disappointed with with Begbie. Uh, He seems to be the butt of a lot of jokes in this and the source of a lot of comedy. Whereas in Trainspotting, he's just pure terror. They are so shit scared of him and you as an audience feel shit scared of him as well because we all know someone who, who can go off like that whereas in this yeah they're scared of him but they're kind of laughing at him at the same time and we're supposed to laugh at him rather than be scared of him and i didn't didn't like that didn't work for me there was no like that they put that into the film though i think i think they're very much aware of what's going on and there's there's a bit where um the him and spud are together right and that they are reminiscing about a certain thing that happened in the first film. Um, I'm trying not to be too specific here for anyone who hasn't well, seen the film yet. It's not much of a spoiler, is it? You can say that, that you know they're reminiscing about him throwing a glass over. The yeah, screen. okay, it's, fine. It's not really a spoiler. Fair, no, I know, but there's like it's a crucial moment in the film. <laughs> in terms of, well, I think it is in terms of the relationship between them, and it. Anyway, so basically that happens and they're reminiscing about it. I think in that moment you see that he's not that Franco isn't the same. And it's it's a very clever device of showing you him old and then showing uh, uh, sorry, showing him young and then showing him older and more um at odds with the world. Whereas before he was part of it and now he's outside and he's looking back at these things that happened. And he's thinking, oh yeah, what a fucking great guy that old Begbie was. When he, it's like, it's it's a separation. It's a separation of the old Begbie and the new. I think that worked quite well. I, I take your point about some of the performances. I thought he, he wasn't as terrifying as Begbie this time. In the in the original train spotting, Robert Carlyle was just fucking nuts. I did think... It's worth pointing out that in the Blade Artist, which follows this, yeah, Begbie lives in California, is a recognised artist, and is married with kids. <laughs> right. I know that seems a bit of a leap. Yeah. So just well, you know, glad so that maybe that may well kind of temper. Yeah. I did think what was weird about his story, though was the how the police barely pursued him. You know, he broke out of prison 
and that was the, that was it. There wasn't any in the book. He doesn't break out of prison. Yeah. I did find that odd. But well, he did in the film, is the thing. He did in the film, yeah. I yeah. mean, because he, he gets himself shivved on purpose and it goes mm. too far and he's thinking, yeah, it's okay, it's kind of funny now. and It's not meant to be dark. It's, it is I just... just a, I, do you know what? I genuinely didn't understand the motivation behind that because he could have just been up for release. Yeah. Do you, not, do you not see? There was no payoff for him escaping, was there? There was only because of how it then means... how it means that he can interact with uh, other characters. Yeah, I guess so. You know, if he was just free, everyone would know he was free and everyone else would behave differently. So I think it adds a little bit of something to the relationships. I did think McGregor really got back into the role. I think that's the first time I've seen him for a while where I've not thought of him as Ewan McGregor and I've thought of him as um, as Renton. Mm, I didn't. I thought I was watching Ewan McGregor, unfortunately, but that yeah. was just me. Oh. Although it had, the, it, had the, the, it had that choose life monologue again yeah which, that was a bit cringe. a bit tacky yeah. it was a bit tacky but the whole the whole film as, as good as it may or may not have been it it was to, to train spotting what force awakens was to new hope no it I was don't it, think it so. was it was it laid on the nostalgia and the reference is quite heavy yes yeah but right, like Steve. but like star wars and Creed and all those things, they, they retread the nostalgia. I think the nostalgia was a crucial part of this. You know, it was... The characters were experiencing nostalgia. And so it, it was just replicating or reflecting the story. Yeah, I mean... The, the, the process. I think one of the issues here is, if you were a brand new viewer... If you were, you know, my lad or whatever, and you were seeing this and you had no experience of train spotting, you'd be coming out of the cinema going, what the fuck was that rubbish? And I'm so glad. they yeah. it's, it's like they made this film for me. It was so many callbacks, so much nostalgia. Let's be honest, the plot and the story, it was pretty ropey. But I just wanted all these little vignettes of those four idiots interacting in different ways you know, the, the bit where they go to the club and you've got all the sectarian stuff going on. <laughs> oh, my song. God. Yeah, that was oh, genuinely laugh out loud funny. fucking hilarious. Yeah. And I thought, this, how would, but think about it. How would that play for a 19-year-old kid going in to watch that film for the first time with no train spotting background? It would make no fucking sense at all. They wouldn't understand what was going on. They would have no, not a clue. Yeah, I'm so glad I rewatched it before I went to see it. I sort of tried to squeeze it in on a like a weekday evening and just managed to get it in. And I, I was so pleased because I think I would have missed so much watching it without uh, watching T two without that context to a lot of what happened. Mm. Um, I mean, other than other than a Spud, they're all pretty despicable characters, aren't they? Well, I mean, well, sp- oh, I mean, you know, sick boys are. So, you know, 20 years on, Sick Boy was a horrendous human being to start with, and now he's a sort of blackmailing sex pest coke addict. Spud is still Spud. Renter's probably the most normalised one, where he's been away... Um, oh, he's the most normal mm. one, but he's still, yeah. a bit, he's still a bit of an ass. Oh, yeah. But he's not normal, though. I mean, he's hyper-realistic. Um, his whole character is just... He's bored with everything, and he thinks he's better than everyone. So, I mean... It... Yeah, but how long did it take for him to be in his old haunt 
to slip into his old ways. It's, well, it, precisely. It's not like the normal human who you relate with, I don't think. I don't think any of them you relate to, do you? I think well, you're supposed to relate to Renton. I think you are. I mean, if you had to, you know, if, it's a good question if you, for the three of you. If you had to relate to one of the characters, which one would it be for you? Yeah, you'd be Renton, obviously. You wouldn't well, think twice about nicking. Oh, really? I'd be sick, boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you don't want to be. No one wants to be Spud, and you've got to be a complete maniac to be Begbie. So you're left with your morality dictates you fall to Sick Boy or Renton, and Renton's the grounded one who didn't mind fucking over his mates for a score because they're all vile. So he had he had morality on his side for that, and Sick Boy's just been doing it all his life. So which one Sick are you? Sick Boy knows a lot about James Bond. They're <laughs> <laughs> no, not me then. I'm probably Tommy, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> You're dead from toxoplasmosis. Yeah. <laughs> what did everyone think of the, the use of like music and stuff in the film? Because obviously that was a big part of the first one and I think they do really well in this again, particularly that, that Prodigy remix of Lost for Life. Uh, when it I, appears, is just very well done. But I loved how it dropped in the, uh, the uh, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life as well. How the the ending to the film sort of comes He drops that, he puts, it on the, he puts the record down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, that was brilliant. That I, was I actually had a book. vinyl delivered today of um, Underworld called uh, the Slow Slippy, something like that. Like, oh, oh, yeah, they do it like half speed or something, don't they? Mate, I listened to the whole thing. Um, yeah. and, I, and the other side is the music where um, Spud's writing his suicide note. Mm. Um, and I bought it from the Underworld shop. It literally arrived today. And it is, it is born slippy at half speed for 12 minutes. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> hmm. Did you notice near the beginning in particular, though, I think it pops up a few times later on as well, a very strange use of pausing, like freeze-framing. Yeah, I saw that. It seemed to be in the it first third. Not. Yeah. Especially uh, during that fight. Yeah, that, that's... That was, that was my favourite scene, I think, the bar fight. In terms of the... At least in terms of how the... That was the most Danny Boyle moment. Where you're seeing them through like a half empty point glass in the background, scrapping away. That was just brilliant. That whole scene was just fantastic. And the way that it just goes, oh, fuck's sake, as he's walking off at the end. I absolutely adored that bit. It was good. It was, I mean, the, the things, Spud, Spud being sick was right at the start. Oh. It was amazing. Franco, Franco taking his kid on that robbery was absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Oh. And uh, Spud doing his stories, I found that I thought that was really, really touching. And we've already mentioned it, but the sectarian song was just fucking. I just thought that was out of this world. Yeah. So Everyone in my my cinema was absolutely howling in that one, <laughs> singing along. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was like it was like the thing <laughs> from Borat, wasn't it? Was it throw the yeah, gym throw down the, the well? That was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah. I think in terms of uh, just mentioning about um, how Spud is now a writer. Um, they tee that up quite nicely and it it kind of fits really well. But it does seem a little melodramatic at points. I think it was a bit overwrought. Um, like this, like how his relationship with um, the woman who I can't remember the name of. The... Oh, his girlfriend. You mean uh, Shirley Henderson's girl? 
No, no. Um, the was she the European one? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I know what you mean Veronica. Veronica, thank you. Yeah, and how you know it ends up with him slipping the note under the door, and I thought, mm, can, we, no. can we talk about the people outside of the main four? Because there wasn't a huge amount of work for people to do, and as I predicted, Kelly McDonald was only going to be a cameo. That was disappointing. I really liked the Diane character. She was uh, a mature head on young shoulders and quite very cool. This <laughs> one, this she just seems like a bit of a smarmy bitch. But yeah. she did, she did drop that nice joke in in her last scene, which was quite nice. Yeah, I, I didn't want to be that guy. I don't want to keep going back to the book, but have you have any of you read porno? No, not read Train Spotting either. Okay, well, you, well, you should honestly, you should read. Now you've seen T two, mm. I can't recommend you read porno enough because it is hilarious but Kelly McDonald in this when when he comes back she's still I think she's doing her masters she's still living in Edinburgh as a student and it, he shacks up with her and starts shagging her again mm. so okay. completely different timelines completely different universe yeah but yeah when yeah. you look at their careers she's probably the one who's doing best of all at the moment isn't she you not think is she do you reckon? Yeah, she's doing. Oh, yeah, I think she is. I think, I think we said this before on the podcast, maybe a year or more ago, that everyone else in this film needed this apart from Kelly McDonald. What's she doing particularly at the moment? Then uh, you're going to put me on the spot now. I can't remember. But yeah, no. last thing I remember seeing her was Boardwalk Empire, which was quite nice. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to IMDb it because I'm, I'm. Well, I mean, you, Johnny Lee Miller's been pretty. He's had a pretty good career lately, hasn't he? I yeah, mean, the whole... it's taken him a long time to get that, though. It did. Elementary helped. I saw him in um, uh, a Danny Boyle-directed play of um, Frankenstein with him and Benedict Cumberbatch. And, I was uh, going to say Dracula 2000, but he <laughs> No. Or what the fuck was that? Dark Shadows. No, not that either. But um, I think he's he's... He's a really good actor, Johnny Lee Miller, uh, particularly so in the train spotting films, obviously. I think Ewan McGregor as well. I mean, he didn't need to do this, did he's, he? Mm, I don't know. His career's he's not gone great guns. The last thing I, um, I think, I can't remember the last thing I saw him in was um, Snowpiercer. Ewan McGregor was in Snowpiercer? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, thought said, I thought you said Ewan Bremner. Oh, no. I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Ewan, Ewan McGregor didn't need to do this. No, no, no. 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 Of, you know, in terms of he, he's he, he's doing great work. Although I did see his directorial directorial debut the other night. It was yeah, it was all right. Yeah, what was that? American Pastoral. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I think Ewan Bremner steals every scene he's in, as he did in the first one. He's mm. the one I don't not feel sorry for, but he's the one I think who should be doing bigger and better things. But he's typecast as Spud. Yeah, I think that's his problem, isn't it? He's also got a very distinctive look that only... I mean, he's not a very um, versatile look to him, it's is it? Thing. I think he was in Black Hawk Down. That was the weirdest thing I ever... I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is Spud doing in a war film? <laughs> yeah. And I think everyone else thought that as well, and it probably killed his career at that but point. Black Hawk Down's got loads of people like that, but anyway, don't digress too much. Yeah. But yeah, he very talented guy and a great actor. But uh, yeah, he, he is forevermore going to be spud. Unfortunately, it's such a lovable character. 
Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the kind of supporting cast, Shirley Henderson, she was barely in it as Spud's long-suffering girlfriend, Gail. Mm. And uh, Irvin Welsh, of course, as Mikey Forrester. Do you remember mm-hmm. him in the first one? Uh, yes. yes. Yep. He sells him the suppositories, doesn't he? And he really yep. says to him, I might as well stick him up my fucking ass." Mm. <laughs> that was weird seeing him as like like this kind of weird arthropathy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of in a, wear, in a lockup full of dodgy fridges and stuff. Yeah. But other than that, the, the cast is tight and small. Like they kept the money, you know, the budget down on the cast for sure. Hmm. Hmm. And the one thing about this that's, that's going to end up really well is it now makes me want to go out and buy a Gucci belt. <laughs> Thanks, sick boy. <laughs> I am going to go and buy the soundtrack on vinyl, but it's not out till June. Uh, which is hard. pretty annoying. You've got to shift those CDs first before they let you have the good stuff. I know. So, so was it a thumbs up from everyone? Or yeah. apart from... No, I, I give it a thumbs up, but it won't be one I'll, I'll re-watch time and time again like the first one. It, it's definitely the one that has been released this year that I've enjoyed watching the most. You know, I liked stuff like Silence. I kind, I kind of liked Jackie for all I said about it earlier. I thought it was a bit, a little bit dull. But I mean, it, it, it's just, it's just a completely different sort of film to those. Yeah. One thing it's, I will say about it is, is that um, despite all the little flaws that I've highlighted its ending is equally as satisfying as the first one. And I'll leave it at that. It, it ends on a really good note. Yeah. I'm hoping, hoping that perhaps maybe Netflix or someone else will step in and, and pick up some of this expanded um, train spotting universe. And because I, I know you haven't read the books, but I so want you guys to share juice terry lawson with me because he is the greatest character that irvin welsh has ever created but you're yet to see him on screen even though he was central to this story he was completely wiped from it but he is in the others and i i think he he's got he's he's got so many fingers in all these different stories that he would be great for a netflix original you heard it here second (laughs) because i've heard it from someone else that is almost all for this week's podcast, but we've just got some recommendations for the week ahead. Um, Paul, what are you going to tell people to watch? Rats. On Netflix. Mm. Morgan Spurlock. Absolutely the most fucking disgusting, horrendous thing I've ever seen in my life. The closest I've ever been to being sick watching a, a film. It's just horrendous. Yeah, watch it. Okay, Matt. Yeah, I'm going to go for Saturday the 4th of February on Viceland, of all channels. 10pm Battle Royale. Oh, nice. Very nice. Um, Owen? Uh, Birdman has just been added to Netflix, which was our ninth best film of 2015. If anyone wants to look at our awards page on (laughs) (laughs) failcritics.com. That's the most tenuous plug. There in the history of this podcast. Yeah. I basically what I was teeing up there was that I've updated the awards page on the Foul Critics uh, on the Foul Critics website now. So you can see everything that won in twenty sixteen. So And uh I'm going to go for just Thursday night, switch your brain off, um, watch the remake of Red Dawn on five star at nine o'clock. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Well I did like I liked the that Red Dawn, I liked the original as well. Both kind of decent action films. Um what have we got next week, Owen? 
Next week, uh, we've got kind of two things. I hope two things anyway. We'll see how the it turns out. The prawn special. The prawn special. We're, that's not happening. Stop trying to make it happen, Paul. <laughs> Paul, when he's away, when he's away one week. <laughs> not just, just, he's going to come back and find it uploaded to the feed. So what, we'll, you, what we'll do is we'll just record one and pretend it's the real one for him to edit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you tried that when I wasn't here. You Did we? Good. Yeah, you. What was it you trying to review? Emmanuel films or something? <laughs> yeah, didn't happen in the end. Um, so next week, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a live episode recorded of sorts, or maybe even a video episode, and um, our regular episode will come back and we'll have Brooker and John Miller on it talking about the new Resident Evil film. So, yeah, two things, hopefully, to come out next week. There we go. Thank you all for listening and joining us on this adventure in film. We'll be back next week with what Owen's just spoken about. Um, yeah, say goodbye, everyone, with your best Begbie impression. Choose life, you fucker! Well, well, Jesus <laughs> Christ. That lassie got glassed. <laughs> no cunts leaving till the right fucking... Oh, I can't remember what the quote is. You get the point. Yes, thank you. Good night. Good night. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failed critics. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.